We are going to wrap up the series that we've been in called James, and just like the title, we've been in the book of James for the past four weeks. This will be the fifth week, uh, taking a brutally practical look at our faith. It's been a great series. Uh, For those of you that haven't been with us, what we've been doing is going week by week, chapter by chapter. I've asked all of you to read a chapter a week. I'm not going to see you raise your hand, but I hope that you've done that. And uh, we just looked at a particular subject that James addresses each week. Now, if you remember, James is the brother of Jesus, and he wrote this letter, probably the first book or letter of the New Testament, wrote it to the new Christians who were Jews that had converted to Christianity, were being persecuted, and had to flee Jerusalem. And this is James, who's a leader, he's a pastor, writing to them, wanting them to be in unity, wanting them to be mature, and really wanting them to reflect Jesus in all that they do, just telling us how to live out our faith. So week one, we talked about this, not if difficult times come, but when they come, right? Because they're coming and how to deal with that. Week two was faith and works. How do we, how do we see the cohesion? How do we see them work together? Yes, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, but just like Paul said, good works have been prepared in advance for us to do that. Our works testify to the finished work of Jesus in us. It's not either, or it's both. And week three was my favorite because we talked about controlling our tongue, right? And we said, if we could just keep our mouths shut, our lives would be a whole lot better. But what we really saw is that the tongue, although it's the smallest and a part of our body, it yields and wields the most influence and power over who we are. And then instead of depending on our ability to tame it, which no one can, we're going to depend on the the power of Jesus on the inside of us to use our tongue to be an instrument that speaks life and not death, that builds up and not tears down. And last week was probably the most uncomfortable of them all, right? Because James was speaking to us that even though we're Christ followers, even though we love Jesus, we still fight. There's still strife. There's still contention amongst us. And he said, why is that? And he helped us see, just opened our heart to see that there are still some things in us that war against the character and nature of God in us being envy and jealousy and selfishness and and bitterness, but that if we appeal to God and his power in us, we can live beyond that, and we don't have to live a life full of strife and contention. And so this week, uh, we're going to wrap it up by taking a look at James 5, verses 13 through 18. And I'm excited to do this. This is not uh, like weeks three and four where it kind of got up in your business. This is really, we see the pastor's heart of James. We see James in these final words being so characteristic of who he is as a leader, as a pastor, and as a man of prayer. We know that James doesn't mince words, right? We know that he doesn't waste words. He gets straight to the point. And what we see here is James highlighting for us, highlighting for those new believers, the importance, the necessity, and the power of prayer in the church and of community in the church, authentic community, that we're not doing this thing alone, that this is not a Western individualistic thing that we do. This is a community because we are the family of God. We're the body of Christ, and we're doing it together. And what we'll see is this. We'll see James talking about something, not as a theory, not a prayer, I should say, as a philosophy, but it's part of who he is. James was known by his contemporaries, and we know because of uh, historians and commentators that James was such a man of prayer and spent so much time on his knees. They say that he developed calluses on his knees, and it looked like he had the legs or the knees of a camel. 
because he spent so much time in prayer. So we're going to see James' heart here. And what we'll find is this, is that James presents four scenarios or situations or circumstances that we all find ourselves in at any given point in time in life, at any given day, at any given moment of our lives. And here's what I want us to do this morning. Here's my challenge to you, that as you listen to this, as you hear these four scenarios, I want you to identify where you're at. My guarantee is this, you're going to be in at least one and maybe more, but at least one. So when you hear this scenario, James is going to ask some questions. Are you? Are you? Are you? And you hear that and you say, that's me. Listen, because James is also going to tell us, here's what you do. Here's how you make it through. Here's how you, you get through this scenario. And then at the end, we're going to have an awesome opportunity. I'm going to put the ball in your court and it's going to be a great day. So let's go. James chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 13. If you have your Bibles, open them, turn them on, click there, turn there. They will be behind me, but just as we've done this whole series, we'll read and then stop and then read and then stop. I'm going to start with just verse 13. Here's James. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. So right off the bat here, James opens up with these questions. These are the first two scenarios we're going to talk about. And asking this question, hey, are any of you suffering hardships? Are any of you going through a difficult time? You say, well, what's a hardship? Is it a hardship to you? It's a hardship. may not be a hardship to someone else, but it's difficult for you. James asking this question, hey, are any of you here? Now, if you've been with us, or if you were at least in week one, you know we talked about when difficult times come. That's how James opens his letter, right? Hey, I'm James, bondservant, slave of Jesus, writing to the 12 tribes. Now, when difficult times come. It's just how he starts his letter. So he's, he's hearkening back to the beginning. James knows that most of these people are going through a difficult time. I mean, they've been persecuted. They've been pushed out of their homeland. He said, hey, are any of you struggling? I think he's identifying with them. Going through a difficult time. Here's what I want you to do. Pray. And then he goes on to the next thing. I'm like, well... James, how should I pray? What should I pray? When should I pray? How long should I pray? Anybody ever think of that? Someone says, well, just pray, brother. Yeah, but what? What do I say? I mean, do I pray quickly? Am I a marathon prayer? Am I a sprinter? Am I a jogger? What what do I say, James? How how, how do I pray through this difficult time? Can 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 I change God's mind? Can I get what I need, what I think I need from God. What are, you, what are you saying, James, when you say you should pray and then you leave it at that? Now, James is a man of prayer. James spent so much time in prayer, if, if historians are correct and the stories are correct, that calluses formed on his knees because that's how much he prayed. So he's speaking again, not, not philosophically, not theoretically, like, yeah, just pray. I think that prayer for us as believers is probably one of the most difficult things to do. I think it's probably the greatest deficiency in church today. Now, I'm saying that because I'm just not a great prayer. I'm going to tell you what. I don't just spend oodles and oodles of time in prayer. And if that you know, makes you feel bad, I'm sorry. I, I don't have a gift of intercession. I pray... But I don't just pray all the time, right? Like, I don't just come in here every day, sit in the sanctuary, and just pray. So even me, I'm asking, James, what do you, what do you mean when you say just pray? 
I think we, we, we have an abundance of sermons, right? An abundance of messages today. Like, if you don't like what I preached this morning, hop in your car, open your phone, go to a podcast app, and you can probably find a better one. Right? And you can, you can listen to it. You can set yourself up on a subscription and listen to a ton of great preachers. We can hear so much preaching. Hear it, hear it, hear it. But what about praying? I think it's just a deficiency. And I, I think when James is saying this, he's not only thinking about himself, but he's thinking about his brother Jesus. Because James, although he doesn't identify himself in this letter as his brother, but as a bondservant, as a slave of Jesus, we know he's his brother. And I think he paints for us a picture of Jesus in mind that when Jesus was going through a difficult time, was suffering a hardship, he was in the garden the night before he would, would go to the cross, the night before he would suffer spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, psychologically, more than any person had ever suffered, where do we find Jesus? We find Jesus in the garden on his knees. The Bible saying that he's under such intense pressure and stress that he's literally sweating blood. Now, medically, they've proven that it is possible to be under such great stress that the capillaries towards the brim of your head can burst and it mix with the sweat and it looks like you're bleeding profusely, but it's just the blood, small blood mixing with the sweat. That is a level of stress that I have never felt and I hope to never feel, but that was Jesus right before he was about to do what he came to do. And we get to listen in and see Jesus praying and here's the words that he say, says, Father, If there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. God, Father, if I can can accomplish your will without suffering to the extent that I believe and I think and I sense that I'm going to suffer, if there be any other way, take the cup from me. How many of you have ever maybe prayed that prayer? You're going through a difficult time and you say, God, I don't even know if it's you, but if there can be any other way to get through this, I'm down. I'll take a different cup. I'll take a smaller cup. I, will, I won't even take a cup. Just if there be any other way, come on, God. Some of us feel guilty for praying that prayer, but Jesus prayed that prayer. The Son of God prayed that prayer in his humanity, but he didn't leave that prayer there. It's like he asks God a question, Father, if there be any other way, pause. You can't see it in the text, but you know he had to pause and just kind of maybe hope, wait, God would say something, but there was no answer. And Jesus follows it up and says, nevertheless, Father, not my will be done, but yours be done. I think sometimes we see prayer as us trying to to twist God's arm, right? To get him to do for us what we want him to do for us. To to influence God, to, to move on our behalf and to give us a different cup. That prayer is just just for God alone, that has nothing to do with us, right? It's just I'm gonna I'm gonna just convince him by my prayers that he can he can just do whatever. Rather than seeing the full picture of Jesus and what I think James is pointing to is is that prayer has never been about me influencing God, but it's always been about God changing and influencing me. And it's not getting what I want, but it's coming to this position where I truly want what God wants. 
because I fundamentally believe, not always feel, but believe that he's got my best at hand and that if he's given me this cup to drink, he's going to give me the grace with which to drink it, the grace with which to get through it, and that on the other side of it, I can get to the other question that James answers when he says, are any of you happy? But he says, pray. What's he doing? He's saying, whenever you find yourself in a difficult time, I want your posture and I want your focus to be vertical on him. James has done that this entire letter, right? The moment that he points out our heart, the moment that he points out something in our lives, he says, but let's just look up. Let's just go right back to Jesus, right back to God. That's got to be your focal point. And he says, hey, are any of you happy? Are any of you just, you're just, maybe things aren't perfect. Maybe they're not 100% ideal, but they're just going good. Are you, are you happy? Is anybody happy in here today? Okay. There were more people in first service who were happy than you, and there were less people in there, but that's okay. That's all right. Are any of you happy? So yeah, yeah. I, oh, I mean, <laughs> sorry, that was more rhetorical that time, but I didn't tell you, but Hey, this question, are any of you happy? You just, You're not going through a difficult time. Maybe you just came out of a difficult time. He says, here's what I want you to do. Are you happy? I want you to praise God. I want you to sing praises. The word there in the Greek is where we get our word psalm. Sing praises. Telling these these Jewish believers who knew what the psalms were because they'd studied them and they'd sang them and Jesus himself had quoted them and sung them. That's what I want you to do. Go back to the psalms and I want you to praise God. Again, what is he telling them? I want your focus to be up. I want it to be vertical. What James is really telling us is that life consists of, and it's a very simple way to look at it, but it's so true. Life consists of two sides, the good and the bad. And there's very little gray. And even when it is gray, we just think it's bad. Life is good. Life is bad. James is saying, in whatever situation we find ourselves in as Christ followers, as believers, whatever situation we find ourselves in, that we should be gravitating toward and conscious of God. That it's, it's him. That when, I'm, when it's hardship, I should find myself here. God, I, if you could give me another cup. But nevertheless, when it's going good, we should find ourselves here. Thank you, Father, for the cup you're giving me right now. We, we, we see that whether it is the sun is shining or the darkness is overwhelming, that God is still God, that God is the God of the mountain, right? He's the God in the valley. And I'm not going to sing it because I don't sing that well. But he, he, he's good regardless of the situation. I think our posture sometimes is this. When it's bad, God, what are you doing? Come on. What's going on? When it's good, we're like, hey, I can tell you why it's going good. I'm just killing it at work. I am being an awesome husband. Like, I'm just going to church. I mean, just things are rolling, and I'm doing so good. It's God's fault when it's going bad, but somehow it's our good when it's going good. It's not our fault, but we, we, we caused it, right? Like, we, we know why it's good. I just think if, if we become careful we will always blame God when it's bad and not praise him when it's good. We become the center of our universe rather than God dominating the central position. He's at the center. That's what James is doing. Are you, are you suffering? Pray. Are you happy? Worship. In either way, 
Look up, look up, look up. Be vertical, not always horizontal. Pointing us right back to God. Life is good, life is bad. God is at the center. He's sovereign over everything. Pray and worship. Those are the first two scenarios. Here's the third one. He leads off with another question. It says this, are any of you sick? Verse 14, any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Here's the third question, a little more, a little more pointed, a little, bit, a little bit different than are you suffering a hardship? Now he says, are you suffering in your body? Are you sick? I think it's not just, do you have the sniffles, but are you sick? Is there something in your body that is not right? Are you going through a difficult time? And now he brings in this, this idea of community because he says this, I want you to call the elders of the church. Who are the elders or who is elder? I don't know. They're the spiritual leaders of the church, pastors, board members. We have elders here that oversee spiritual matters. Call on them and ask them to pray for you. What James is saying is invite people into your life. Here's what happens sometimes in church. Someone gets sick. And they say, no one prayed for me. No one called me. No one emailed me. My question is, did you tell anybody? Or did you assume that we would supernaturally know? Now, I'm not just saying this because people are doing it. I'm just saying that's how we get sometimes. We don't reach out and we expect people to automatically reach in. What James is saying is, hey, there should be community in this Christian life. And if you're sick, ask people to pray for you. Call on them to lay hands on you and to pray for you. Don't just expect people to know. And then when they don't know and they don't ask, you get mad and say, well, I'm going to a different church because people don't care. See, every Sunday, what we do is we have an opportunity at the end of each service that if you are sick or there's any need that you have to please come forward, we'd love to pray with you. I'm not saying that needs to be the only opportunity, but it is an opportunity. Say, hey, are you sick? Let somebody know. Why? So they can pray for you. So that they can agree with you in prayer. So that you can collectively take your focus off the sickness, off what you're going through, and look up. And look up together. Reach out. I'm not shirking the responsibility of the church to be structured in such a way where the leadership doesn't need to reach out. But that we can take that step and say, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm sick. I'm not feeling good in my body. Can you pray for me? I don't know if it's serious. I don't know if it's, if it's not serious. I, I just, but I need prayer. Can you pray for me? Can you take that step? And maybe it's uncomfortable. And even if someone didn't approach you and just say, can you pray for me? I just, I need prayer. And James is saying, here's what will happen when, when you do that. When you ask someone to pray for you, when you ask the leadership to, to pray for you, they'll pray for you. They'll lay hands on you and pray. And what they'll do is, he said, they will anoint you with oil. Now, if you've grown up in church, and maybe a church like this, you have a context for what that means. If you didn't grow up in a church like this, or a church that didn't use oil, and you've not grown up in church, you think, well, what's the deal with oil? Like, how much oil are they going to put on me? And what kind of oil is it? Olive oil? Canola oil, motor oil, vegetable oil. I mean, what are you talking? I don't understand. What's this oil stuff going on? I don't, I don't get it. 
I think it's, it's good to answer that because what happens sometimes is someone, you, you may come forward for prayer, you're like, well, James said it, and then all of a sudden this person pulls out a little bottle of liquid, shakes it up, puts it on their finger, and rubs some substance on your head, and you think, what's going on? I just wanted to be prayed for. I didn't know you were going to put slippery oil on me. What is this weird? Is this a cult? What does it mean? First time I ever prayed for somebody when I was... I said I wanted to be a pastor. So the pastor here at the time, Pastor Ed, he said, I want you to start praying for people. He gave me some oil. I was so nervous. Person came up for prayer, got the oil on my finger, closed my eyes, reached out to pray for them, and stuck my finger right in their eye, full of oil. (laughs) Scented oil, right? Spiced oil in their eye. Yeah, they didn't like that very much. Never came back for me to pray for them. So oil, what's the deal with oil? Well, historically in the Bible, we know that oil, olive oil, was used for its medicinal properties, had some healing properties, some antiseptic qualities, but it goes beyond that, and it's far more spiritually significant than it is medically significant. You go back to the Old Testament when they would anoint a priest who was the spiritual overseer of the nation of Israel. They would actually take vats of oil, and they would dump it all over the priest, and it would just go from the top of his head all the way down his body, because oil is spiritually significant and symbolic of the anointing and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, oil would just flow over them, signifying God has anointed that priest to lead these people, and his anointing and his presence and his power has been on them. The oil of God is also is symbolic of healing. Because it has healing properties. It's a healing balm. It's soothing. The oil of God is also significant of the grace of God that is given to us in abundance, that, that covers us. So when, when, when we anoint with oil, which here we don't you know, dump a bucket, it's just a small thing. When we anoint with oil, what we're saying is, is that, Father, we acknowledge the power and the presence and the anointing and the healing Of the Holy Spirit. It's just a physical marker for us to say, hey, we know that God heals, we know that He's present, we know that He's here, but we're going to agree in faith. We don't believe that the oil is supernatural and we'll start selling it to you for $30 a vial. We just believe that it is spiritually significant because James, God's word, tells us that it's significant. Does the oil heal you? No, God heals you. It's just a, an acknowledgement of him and him being the center point and the focal point of what's going on. Again, James is saying, let's look up. Let's look up. James then says, they will lay hands on you. They will pray for you. They will anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. And then he says this, and you will be healed. It'll heal the sick. It'll make you well. And if you've, and if you've committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. Now, the word heal there is an interesting word because it's the same word in the New Testament used for salvation. It's the word sozo in the Greek, which, yes, it means physical healing, but it's on a whole nother level because it's spiritually healing. It's it's holistic. It means it's salvation. It's an eternity spent with him. That's what James is saying. And he says it will heal the sick. Here's a question that I have. Not every person that's healed, as prayed for, is healed. Because he says this, he says, pray the prayer of faith or such a prayer offered in faith. Question, what's the prayer of faith, James? 
Is the prayer of faith something I can flip to and and then memorize and recite? I mean, what is the prayer of faith? He doesn't define it. The Bible doesn't say, pray this, this is the prayer of faith, and all these things will happen. He said, but such a prayer offered in faith. Well, how, how do I know that I'm praying in faith and not just out of faith? I think an easy way to look at it is this. Is the person coming forward for prayer who's sick, do you believe that God can heal you? Yes. The person praying for them, hey, do you believe God can heal me? Yes. So you believe that God can heal me, and I believe that God can heal me. Let's pray. Let's agree. That's a prayer of faith. Why? It's rooted in and dependent upon God. And the fact that he is a healer and he does heal, not faith in the oil, not faith in the person, not faith in the tone, the emotion, the sound, the level of the voice or how excited we get, but in God and his power alone. I I believe God, you heal. I believe God, you can heal me. Let's pray in Jesus name. That's the prayer of faith. Simple as that. But like I said, He doesn't always heal, does he? I've prayed for people and they haven't been healed. How many of you could say, well, my my, my dad wasn't healed. My my friend wasn't healed. My my, my coworker wasn't healed. We prayed the prayer of faith. I believe they believe, but they weren't healed. Why why weren't they healed? That's the question, right? The three-letter question, hardest to answer. Why doesn't God always heal? Here's my answer. Probably going to hate it. I don't know. Just being honest, because here's why. Because some people will say, God didn't heal you because there's sin in your life. God didn't heal you because you don't have enough faith. Well, how do you know if I have faith? Because God would have healed you. Well, that's convenient. I'm not one of those guys that can, can go off on that limb and say, well, yeah, you just, yeah, you're not being healed because you're sinful. Well, he can save me eternally when I had sin, but he can't heal me temporarily. Okay, that's how you want to live your life. Go for it. And it's that question that's difficult because it's a reality. My grandfather prayed, God, would you heal me? God didn't heal him. God took him home, but he was at peace. I think that, that, that thing that James adds on the end here where he says, and if you've committed any sins, you will be forgiven. And in light of what this word healing means, salvation, what I do know is that God doesn't always heal on earth, but he always, always, always forgives. Always. And because he's forgiven me eternally, I can spend an eternity with him where there's no pain, no suffering, no sickness, no disease. So in the end, God does always heal. It doesn't always manifest itself on the earth. Case in point, Jesus heals a man paralyzed from birth. His friends bring him to the house where it's packed out. Everybody see Jesus. Rip the roof open, drop the man down. He's laying on the mat, quadriplegic, can't move. Jesus says this, son, your sins are forgiven you. He didn't ask to be forgiven. He wasn't thinking about being forgiven. He just wanted to walk. Jesus forgives his sins and then says, now rise up and walk. I think God always deals with the eternal before he deals with the temporal. God can heal you on earth. Yeah, no problem. I believe it every day of the week and twice on Sunday, but he forgives. He takes care of our eternity. He is eternally minded. So the question then remains is, well, what do we do with that? How do you proceed? 
here's how I proceed, and I'm 31, and I'm a pastor, and I'm just figuring this out, so take it for what it's worth. Because I can't tell you why someone was healed and why someone wasn't, I'm not even going to go there, it's not my category, here's what I believe my responsibility is as a pastor, and as more so just as a Christ follower, is I just believe that God heals, and I believe that I should release my faith, and the results are his category. You're sick? All right, let's pray that God heals you. God, we prayed in the name of Jesus that they would be healed because your word says that by the stripes of Jesus Christ, we are healed. And David said, you heal me of every sickness and every disease. And Father, your word says that you are Yahweh Rapha, the God that heals. That's what I believe, Father. That's what I pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name. God, the results are yours. I walk away. I've prayed for people on the left that weren't healed. I've prayed for people on the right that were healed. And you know what happens if we're not careful? If we begin to take responsibility for what didn't happen here, what God didn't do, we're going to be very tempted to take responsibility for what God does do. Well, God, you didn't heal the person on the left because I didn't pray with much gusto. Like I didn't didn't get super excited and say, in the name of Jesus. (laughs) Right? So that's what I got to do every time for someone to be healed. When it has nothing to do with the level of my voice, nothing to do with how excited I don't get, it has everything to do with the power of God and the power of his word. So whether I say, in the name of Jesus, or in the name of Jesus, either way, it's God's word, not my voice. And I'm not going to take responsibility for what didn't happen because I never want to take responsibility for what does happen. Just say, God, you're sovereign in every case. And I'm just going to believe that you're going to heal. And whether you heal right now or whether you heal in heaven, you are supreme. Your word is eternal. Your plan will be seen through. And we just say, God, the results are yours. To release my faith is mine. That's a better way to live. But it doesn't make it emotionally easy all the time because it's still hard when God doesn't heal that we can see with our eyes. But we know that he always, always, always forgives. Always. And he's good and he's faithful. So if you've prayed and someone hasn't been healed and you're suffering through a hard time, here's what I want you to do. Just like James said, pray. God, I, I don't understand it. I, I, I don't like the cup that's before me, but nevertheless, your will be done. Help me to focus on what I can do, not take responsibility for what I can't do. It's a miserable way to live, trying to be responsible for something you don't have the authority or the ability to do. That's his category. That's scenario number three. Here's the fourth and final one, and it's not a question. It's more of a statement. It's more of a, I say, an admonition from James for all of us. Here's what he says, verse 16. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human as we are, as as human as we are, yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and earth began to yield its crops. I don't know about you, but right off the bat, what James says makes me uncomfortable. Confess your what? Sins to whom? One another. Oof. Well, that means I got to admit that I got stuff in my life. What James is saying is, hey, yeah, I love you. You're Christ followers. You love Jesus, but I know you still got sin in your life. I know that you've 
are carrying things around. God forgave you of them. It's not a matter of forgiveness we're talking about here, okay? We're not confessing one another so God will forgive us. He forgave us. This is beyond that. This is James saying, you are carrying stuff in your heart and in your life that is weighing you down. That is a burden on you. And what I want you to do is I want you to confess one to another. What does confess mean? It literally means to acknowledge openly. That's what confess means. I I want you to acknowledge with one another that there are things in your life that you're struggling with. Use wisdom. Okay? I want you to acknowledge it openly. What James is saying is, is now he's bringing, and they'll pray for you, but now he's really bringing this idea of community in. What James is saying, there should be in the church such authentic community that is transparent, that is honest, and that is vulnerable, where you can go to another fellow believer and say, look, brother, look, sister, this is what I'm struggling with. I'm carrying so much fear. I'm I'm carrying bitterness. I'm bitter towards you. I just, I got to get that off. James tells us why, because you're like, what's the purpose of that? He says this so that you'll be healed. And it's a different word for healing than in verse 15, which was salvation, because God already took care of that. And Jesus, this is just restoration. I think that it's this. A big part of the healing that he's talking about is, have you ever carried something around that was such a weight on you, and what you needed was a decompression? Some of us are walking around in church like this. We can't breathe, right? And we're just, how are you doing? I'm doing good, brother. Doing good, sister. Yep, praise the Lord. Glad to be here. And we sit down in our seat. Nobody can see. And we're like, man, completely missing the point of being in community with one another. Because I think somewhere along the line, we started to think that church was just something that we come and do. And we sit and we stand and we watch those of us who are up here on the stage perform for us. And then we listen to it. We think, that's pretty good. I may implement that in my life. And then we go on because we're busy and we got so many things going on that we're missing this community. What we're missing is what God is saying. Hey, look, I've done everything I need to do for you in Jesus. And you and I have this vertical relationship. And that's what James was talking about in the beginning. Are you suffering hardship? Pray to God vertically. Are you happy? worship God vertically. Are you sick? Okay, let's bring the vertical down to a horizontal. And he's keeping it here. Now, are you still struggling with some sin? God forgave you vertically. Now, let's be a conduit of grace and healing and restoration one to another. Let's let what God has done this way now come out this way. And let all this pretension and all of this masquerading just die. Because I think what happens is not only are we like this... We walk in here like our Facebook profiles, right? Because you know our Facebook profiles aren't true. It's just what we want people to think is true. Like you take a picture of coffee and your Bible and say, such an amazing time with God this morning. We don't even, your coffee's still full. <laughs> and smoke is still coming off of it, right? It's like I want people to know that I'm, I'm reading my Bible and drinking the, the most rare coffee, right? Because it just makes me more spiritual. Or you show a picture of a meal that you, 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 you know, cooked, and it's like a Michelin five-star dish, and everybody's like, oh, you're an amazing cook. And you're like, yeah, I bought it from the store, but they don't know that, you know? And you, know, or you, you show, I cleaned my house today, and you cleaned one room, and the rest of your house is a mess, right? And everybody thinks that, you are so amazing. You're like, yeah, I called Mary Maids in, and they cleaned the whole house, but I wanted people to think I did it. You know, it's like, that's the world that exists on social media, Maybe 5% is true. The rest is just a projection 
of what we want people to think, of what we want people, of how we want to be. I want to be perceived this way. And that, that culture brings itself into the church. And we're all projecting, yeah, here's my coffee, here's my Bible, here's my dinner, here's my house. And it's like, but inside, we're dying, right? Because we're carrying stuff that is heavy and burdening us and the fear and the anger and the bitterness and the worry and whatever it may be. We're just like, man, I just need to... And James is saying, that's what should exist in the church. And it doesn't happen in these rows, right? The church doesn't grow in rows. It grows in circles. It grows in relationship. And that's one of the reasons why we're beginning to make such a big deal about small groups because you need to get in groups of people and develop relationships so you can say, hey, man, yeah, I just, I'm afraid right now. My son is struggling at school and I just, and it's tearing me up. Can you pray for me? Yeah, let's pray. I went through the same thing a couple years ago. Hey, man, I'm, I'm struggling with this addiction and there's no fear of being forsaken, no fear of being, you know, just plastered all over social media of what you're going through. There's just honesty and openness and integrity. That's what James is pushing for. That's what James knows that we need. When he says, confess one to another, it's not to make you feel like an idiot. It's not to put your sin on display. It is to benefit you. It is to help you. And then pray for one another. You say, well, I don't know how to pray. Well, guess what? For the next four weeks, we're going to do a series called Teach Us to Pray, and we're just going to learn how to pray. Some practical things. Learn what prayer is and just learn how you can begin to develop a a habit of prayer and a lifestyle of prayer for you. Encourage you to come to that. But James, hey, for scenario, confess one to another. And I I just want you to know, it doesn't have to be some deep, dark, dark, lurid thing. It could simply be, I'm just worried, and I don't know why. Can you pray for me? He wants us to grow up together. He wants us to to become focused on him. It's a beautiful thing. And and, And I love how he wraps this up because he says this, the fervent and effective prayer of a righteous man produces good results. What is he telling them? He's saying, hey, look, I know I just talked to you about some sin and you've got some things in your life, but I want you to know that you're still righteous. What does righteous mean? You're right with God because of Jesus. Even though you're struggling with sin, it doesn't make you not saved. It makes you a human. And you're still righteous because your righteousness isn't based on your your works. Your righteousness is based on the finished work of Jesus. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that when you pray, God hears you and God answers and God works through your prayers. That's what he's saying. Hey, you can take it to the bank. And he says, just to prove the point, there's this guy named Elijah. And for them, Elijah was a hero of the faith, right? I mean, he was like a Marvel superhero to those guys. He says, hey, Elijah. And they're like, ooh, Elijah. He said, yeah, guess what, Elijah? He's just a guy like you and me, just as human as you and me. And when he prayed, and he said, hey, no rain should come. It stopped for three and a half years. And then when he prayed for rain to come, God sent it. If Elijah can do it, that's just as human as you and me. Hey, God hears you. God answers you. God works through your prayers. That's what James is saying. The importance, the necessity, and the power of prayer and community coming together where we can look across the aisles from maybe the seats we sit in every week and say, that person sitting next to me is just like me. And maybe they're just as out of breath as me. And we could connect. I ask you, or I told you, There's four scenarios. 
And I ask you if you could identify in any one of these scenarios throughout this message. And hopefully you identified with one. And if you identified with more, that's great too. There's a scripture at the beginning of James. It won't be on here, but I want to read it to you. And, and most people, when they quote the book of James, they'll quote this scripture. It's one of the ones they quote. It's probably the highlight of his book. And he says this, 122. But don't just listen to God's word. You must also do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. Don't just hear it. Don't just come and listen to sermons. You got to do it. You've got to put it into practice. Otherwise, you're fooling yourself to think, if I just listen by osmosis, it's going to come in and then it's going to come out. You've got to make a conscious decision to do it. Some translations, be ye not a hearer of God's word, but be ye a doer of God's word. Right? Old King James. Don't just listen, but do. Do. 